I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. It's the KSL Greenhouse. Expert tips for flowers, trees, gardens, and soil. Our hosts are Maria Chaleos and Ton Bettis on KSL News Radio. Good morning. Thank you for joining us for the KSL Greenhouse. Uh, it's great to be with you when the weather is finally feeling a little more summer-like. And this morning, we want to start out the hour and talk about different varieties of cherries that do well in Utah. And, Ton, you've come up with a list for us. Yes, the list is actually from USU on different cherries that are traditionally grown here and some newer varieties. And it has both sweet cherries and what we'd call tart cherries or pie cherries. Some people call them sour cherries, and we don't like that because it tart's a much better word for it. <laughs> okay. So they're just a little less sugar, but they're good for cooking. So a lot of them do well here in the They do. State. The cherries are starting to ripen. Jay's mentioned during the break that his are almost there. My father-in-law has been eating cherries. And Mm. so they're a a week or two earlier, it seems like, depending on the variety. I could be totally off, too, on that. But, you know, we usually start seeing the cherries show up. And I guess it is late June. So we're about on time. Just doesn't feel like late June. (laughs) So in this list, there are several heirloom varieties, such as Lappins and Rainier, uh, Utah Giant um, being, I think, is in here somewhere. It's funny if it's not. It is. But there's nothing wrong with these older varieties, especially like the Bing and the um, Lambert and Lappin's cherries, because the reason these cherries are not commercially grown anymore is because the skin's a little bit thinner and they're harder to ship, meaning mm. that when you pick them off your own tree— they're going to just be maybe a little more flavorful and um, going to have a little thinner skin when you eat them. So, But there are some local sweet cherry growers up in Box Elder County and down in southern Utah County that you can buy fresh local sweet cherries now through the next two or three weeks. And those cherries that are locally grown or ripened on the tree and taste really good. But I wanted to put this up because it does give you a pretty good list of what we'll do here on these newer ones. Um, the Chelan, and then they also have another one. Where is it? Sweetheart are newer varieties. One I think they should have added is the, well, they do have it. The Stella Sweet Cherry is there. So there's a pretty good variety. Um, the tart cherries, I will point out that we usually grow Montmorency. That's our most common tart cherry. Mm-hmm. But the English Morello is one that is also a good one for canning and cooking uses. It's a slightly different flavor. 
And then another one I wish they would have put in here is called Balaton. And that one's available online and sometimes locally. Even though it's called a tart cherry, it's sweet enough just to eat right off the tree. What I really like about this list is people call you all the time and say, hey, what is your favorite? But this kind of gives you a description so that whether you like them more tart or you like them sweeter or you're going to use them for canning, um, it gives you a better idea of a large variety of Yes. And so types. it does. And so on there, like if you want yellow cherries, they've got the Royal Anne and the Rainier listed, which are both yellow sweet cherries. And those are supposed to be less prone to being eaten by birds because they're yellow and the birds perceive them as being unripe. And so that's one strategy you can use. And then the yellow sweet cherries seem to have a little bit more mild flavor hmm. to them also. The I guess the dirty secret about the yellow sweet cherries is that they are often grown because they're turned into maraschino cherries. And it because they have that yellow f- color, it's easier to get a red color into them and oh. get them uniformly sweet. And so they were used or they're used for that, but they're really delicious. And you pay a lot of money for them in the grocery stores. So you can f- actually find some local yellow sweet cherries too, at least down in southern Utah County. I know of one or two people growing them, but this is just a a good list of cherries. I know that the trees are a little sparse this year in the garden centers. They've been sold down. I've seen several places with fruit trees still, but this just gives you a good description of a lot of good varieties for Utah. And the other thing I want to point out is that they give a ripening time and the like the uh, sweetheart is a late July to August, mm-hmm. and it's unheard of to have fresh local sweet cherries in late July or August. And so, if you like sweet cherries, you know, Lappins is a late July, you can stagger the planting and have say three oh. trees and have one ripen in late June, one mid July, one late July, and have a month or six weeks worth of cherries, you're not overwhelming yourself with all of them ripening at once. And if you're selling them at a gardener's market or something, you know, you have a little micro farm in your yard, staggering those varieties like that is always a good business decision to have them available for a longer period of time. It also says whether they're crack resistant or not, but it doesn't say whether they're worm resistant. There's they're the all big thing. Not, <laughs> they're not worm resistant. And when we're saying crack resistant, where these cherries aren't using crack. Um, they just, a lot of these varieties have been discontinued commercially because if it rains when they're right, when they're ripening, the skin will crack. It's a physiological response. That's not so common in Utah, but they put that in there. If you say are a market grower or have a small micro farm, you might avoid varieties that are more likely to crack. You're not going to buy them if they're cracked, right? No, you're not. Even though they're still good to eat? They're fine, but yes. And that's why they put that information on there. One of the main reasons being isn't really commercially grown very much anymore anymore, is that it has a tendency to crack. Says susceptible. Yes. All right. And you can find this complete list on the KSL Greenhouse Facebook page. We're going to take a break, come back with your calls and comments. Uh, Ruth is on the line next from Lehigh. We'll go to her call. Number for you to call, 801-575-8255. Or you can text your question at 57500. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. 
they pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Good morning. Thanks for spending your Saturday morning with the KSL Greenhouse. Maria Anton with you. The number to call 801-575-8255 or you can text us at 57500. Ruth is on the line in Lehigh. And Ruth, good morning. What are your questions? Well, good, beautiful morning to you. I noticed, and I don't remember seeing this last year, but I noticed two round uh, circles of uh, clover in my lawn. They're kind of next to each other, maybe a foot apart, probably about two feet in diameter. And I'm wondering if there's anything you can do this time of year on the heat of the summer to get rid of that or if I have to wait until it's cooler. What color what are the flowers on the clover? There are flowers on it. Yeah, the little round white flowers. Oh, they're white. So it's Dutch. Okay, it's Dutch clover then. I was trying to mm-hmm. make sure they were not black medic, which looks kind of like clover, which has yellow flowers. But the clover, I'm torn on this because when it flowers, it is a great source of pollen for honeybees during the summer. <laughs> And I laugh at that because I have a son who's a beekeeper and he'd yeah. say, leave it there. <laughs> yes. But if you want to get rid of it, I mean, it was getting hot enough that a spray, you could try Turflon Ester, which is supposed to get rid of um, clover. Or you could try another one called Image All-in-One Lawn Weed Killer. So those would be okay. two you could try. But, yeah, I, if there's clover here and there. Now, do you regularly fertilize your lawn? Um, We do it ourselves. And my son was not real good about doing it with a, a pre-emergent this year. But you are getting two or three fertilizations a year? Yes. Okay. Yes. I was just making sure good. because the, the – great. Good. Because the clover can take over – if your lawn is nitrogen starved, but that's plenty of nitrogen to kind of hold the clover back. So one of those two products, the turf lawn ester or image all in one lawn weed killer would do it. But you could also monitor the patches and if they don't grow too much, maybe just leave them alone. Okay. My son said, well, I'll just mow those little flowers off and you can't see it. I thought, okay. Yeah. So my that, other question go ahead. really quick was, we did. We zero escaped our uh, uh, what do you call it? Park strip. In fact, three of three of my neighbors all together. We did that, and we put down black plastic, and then we covered it with rock. But now this year, it's been a year. Now we're starting to get some weeds along the edges, and I'm wondering what we can do. Whether we dare spray anything on those now in this heat, or just have to hand pull them out. Well, you can hand pull them if it's just rocks and you have a couple inches down, you actually could get a weed torch and burn them. You don't need to burn them oh, to a crisp, okay. but you just wilt them down. Oh. And oh, my son has something like that. Yeah, oh. and so, I mean, it's people like to get out with their weed torch. Now, I'm only recommending their <laughs> use in areas with rock when there's not a lot of weeds yes. and they're just green so we're not starting fires. But a weed torch uh-huh. is a great solution for graveled areas. 
Oh, that sounds great. Would it do any good in the uh, springtime when it's still cool to put down all along the edge some glyphosate, some Roundup? No, because the glyphosate needs to be applied to living plant tissue to be effective. Okay. Uh, The only thing you could really try is maybe get some pre-emergent and just sprinkle it like preen. Sometimes you can find them in a can and just salt and shaker it out along the edge to see if you can prevent some of those from coming up. Okay, that sounds great. Oh, thank you so much. You've helped me with both of those problems. Great. Thanks, Ruth, for your call this morning. Uh, Ton Nexusners wants to plant garlic. They're wondering when to plant and when to harvest. They will plant this fall, and the garlic harvest time was just a couple weeks ago. Okay. Uh, Next person would like to know, what can they spray on their tomato plants to protect them against pests? Nothing. It's just more something that you would monitor. And if you start seeing pests, I mean, the pests you would monitor for are thrips, aphids, spider mites, and the tomato hornworm, which you found one this week. You found a tomato hornworm. I guess. And so... Meaning the leaves, big holes. Yeah. You know, 90% of the time, your tomatoes are not going to require a spray. And so you would just... Um, monitor. Now, you can monitor for some of these by just going through and things, and if they start looking funny. But I will say that even if you did do protective sprays, if an aphid or a thrip gets into the tomato and bites the tomato and sucks some juice out, it just takes a couple of strikes to introduce a disease like curly top. And so that's why pre-spraying tomatoes oftentimes just isn't worth it. Okay. Paula is on the line in Clinton. Good morning, Paula. What was your question? Uh, I have a honey locust, or I'm sorry, a honey crisp apple tree. And um, some years I get tons of apples, other years I get nothing. This year I had a ton of blooms, and then I don't know what happened. Now I have not one apple on my tree. And I'm wondering if the apple, the honey crisp apple tree only produces every other year because I didn't get apples three years ago. Most apples can develop what's called biennial bearing, and that's where they just bear apples every other year. Um, Being that you live so close to West Point, those apples should just produce anyway because you're close. No, I'm just kidding. I'm I'm from West Point. Yeah, he's just. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But um, the. But the if the blossoms fell off this spring, last winter caused a whole bunch of weirdness in fruit trees and we're seeing it all over the Wasatch Front. Um, I have some apple trees, uh, crab apples in my front yard and one of them bloomed and one of them didn't. You know, I don't know why. You know, it's just I think the crazy weather has caused a lot of it. But um, all you can really do is be patient and if you do get an apple crop, thin the apple so you have one apple per cluster so you have five, four or five blooms and you thin it back to the biggest apple when they're about dime-sized. And so you it pretty much will equate to one apple for every six, six inches to foot of branch. And that will discourage the tree from going into biennial bearing. But some apple trees just have a tendency to do that. And if is the Honeycrisp apple healthy otherwise? Yeah, I think it, it's got leaves. It looks good. Yeah, just leave it alone, and hopefully it reblooms next year or the year following, and just let it do its thing because I've actually been seeing this 
and just weird things like this this spring all over the Wasatch Front. Okay. Well, I appreciate your input. All right, Paula. Thanks so much for your call today. Uh, next listener, Ton has maple in the park strip, but it's been diagnosed with verticillium wilt. They're wondering if there's a treatment to save it and uh, or prevent other trees also in the park strip from getting it. No, there's not really. And if a tree goes down with verticillium wilt, it's usually because the tree was already stressed, even though visually it may not have been. So they can't save it. No, and maples are especially prone to verticillium and a number of other what we call vascular wilt diseases is pretty much they get in and clog the conductive tissue. It's almost like hardening of the arteries. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that I would put another maple in the park strip, but there are, and the verticillium is already in the soil. So you might, you know, sometimes maples will get verticillium and it'll only take out certain limbs and the tree gets it under control on its own. But it's just one of those things that once it's in there, there's really not much you can do. That is not a great answer. All right. Thanks, Don. We need to take a break. The number to call with your questions, 801-575-8255. John, Trent, you are coming up next. And the number to text us, 57500. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.